0: Hello and welcome to Anjali Vision, a monthly podcast hosted by me, Anjali Misra, a Chicago-based freelance writer and community organizer, and general pop culture trivia savant. Each episode, I offer my best analysis of current shows across multiple platforms and genres, and interview guests about their favorite TV show or current obsession. Come for the intersectional feminist critiques of popular media, stay for the deep conversations with folks from a variety of backgrounds about what they love or hate to watch. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9. I'm really excited to share a little bit later my interview with my friend Brandon Lee, who is a Chicago-born and raised community organizer, nonprofit professional. That's how we know each other. Brandon's also what I refer to as the preeminent scholar on all things Star Wars in Our community in our social circles gonna be sharing my interview with Brandon a little bit later about all things Star Wars but first I wanted to just mention why this episode focuses completely on the Star Wars universe specifically I asked Brandon to talk with me about these new TV series that have come out within the Star Wars canon because after all this is a TV review podcast at this point there are something like five or six series some of which have aired multiple seasons that are a part of the star wars universe shows like the mandalorian book of boba fett Andor, ahsoka the obi-wan kenobi miniseries there's a number of animated shows and we get into all of that a little bit later like i said brandon is just a wealth of knowledge about why these shows are popular what he loves and hates about star wars But again, I wanted to put into context for everyone why I chose to interview Brandon about Star Wars at this particular moment. Certainly it has global appeal, but what is it about Americans' consumption of Star Wars that bears mentioning in this current climate and moment? Someone who I think does a good job of naming that is actually Mumia Abu-Jamal, who who like me, was born in Philadelphia and was a Black Panther activist, is currently a political prisoner in the United States, but also just a really powerful writer. Um, And in the 1970s, while incarcerated, he wrote a really incredible social commentary about the title is Star Wars and the American Imagination. And so I wanted to quote that a little bit here. When Star Wars premiered in 1977, it swept the nation like a fever. Why did Star Wars strike such a deep and jangling nerve? Why did it become a craze, one that seemed to surprise everyone, critics, the movie's executives, everyone it seemed, except the producer, George Lucas? The nation had just recently been forced to submit to a seemingly uncivilized, as in low-tech, enemy, and it faced the generational rebellion of the 1960s. Vietnam syndrome permeated the entire culture, not just the political elites. The younger were virtually uniformly anti-war in their orientation. In short, the land was in the midst of a cultural and political rebellion, sparked in large part by resistance to an unpopular war. In this context, why would a movie, even one set in another world, find appeal when the heroes were a ragtag bunch of rebels, decidedly low-tech, fighting against a fearsome, militarily invincible empire. Part of the success of Star Wars was its undeniable youth appeal, yet there were much deeper reasons for its cultural resonance. America, the Empire, didn't like its role, at least amongst its young. It wanted to reimagine itself as the ragtag band, fighting against great odds against an evil empire. It imagined itself as it wanted to be, as it had claimed to be in its infancy, against a cruel and despotic king in the late 18th century. It reshaped itself into the rebels, not the imperial overlords. It shaped itself as oppressed, fighting for freedom. But America, like every nation, has its ages of psychosis. It has its fits of indecision and periods of self-delusion. Was this fascination with Star Wars and the national identification with the rebels one of them? For generations, Americans have declined to define themselves as imperialists. That's what our enemies called us. That wasn't what we called ourselves. We were for freedom. We were for self-determination. We were good. We were Luke Skywalker, not Darth Vader, and definitely not the cruel warped emperor. Yet aficionados of the Star Wars saga know that Luke and Darth Vader were, after all, intimately related. That is the meaning of Star Wars. We were rebels. We are Empire. It was our destiny. Right? And so without further ado, here is my interview with Brandon. So welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Hey, Anjali, this is Brandon Lee. You know, what I do for a living... I, I used to work for Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, and I think that's where we might have first met. And I'm still involved in the circle. We've got plenty of mutuals. I'm born and raised in Chicago. I'm still working in the nonprofit and community organizing world currently with the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the episode, this episode to talk about Star Wars is because you're widely known and celebrated in the community and in our social circles, as the preeminent Star Wars scholar of the neighborhood, oh I would god. say. Oh my you god! You can either deny or defend that as you um, wish.
1: I can neither confirm nor deny, but okay. I would like to think that I am in the at least 80th percentile.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> I like it. I love that. Okay. Yeah. My first question is: When did your love obsession? fascination with Star Wars begin?
1: I first got into Star Wars in the pre-prequels era. I would say that really I inherited this VHS set from my aunt who had an extensive VHS movie collection. I inherited the Star Wars films. Those were played on repeat. Essentially, when I was a kid over and over again, and this was also pre special editions as well. So like when the special editions came out, I think that's when my fandom went into overdrive a little bit like that's where like this revisiting of Star Wars in the popular culture in a way that like wasn't there because there were no new movies there. There were books and role playing games and another run of action figures. But it is not what it is now in the sense that there were like three movies and some books that were loosely connected and then not much else. Once the prequels came out and then, of course, once the sequels came out, that was really like I ate it up, all of it. And that that continues today. I continue to eat it up.
0: Awesome. So it's just so funny to hear too, that like your entree was like, first of all, VHS tapes, incredible, very relatable as like a child of the nineties myself. And then I feel like there's always that relative, that aunt or that uncle who's like, Hey, check out this movie or check out this book. And then the rest is history. So <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. How has your fascination or consumption of Star Wars content and media, how has that evolved or changed over time? And particularly with the advent of these live action series that have been airing on Disney Plus, a lot of people talk about it as bringing in a new generation of fans, they're controversial, for lack of a better term. Yeah, just curious how that all falls in for you.
1: Yeah. I love the streaming series in large part because it's new Star Wars every week, (laughs) and I dig that. It sure beats having to wait two or three years for a movie. If I have a second deep dive moment for myself, it is Disney era because the way they did the cutoff is that the storyline outside of the movies resets after Disney makes makes a big purchase. So... It gave me an opportunity to start from scratch. I'm doing air quotes, start from scratch, if you will, with the expanded universe. And so that was an opportunity to not feel so overwhelmed by the novel series and not feel so overwhelmed by little nuggets in role-playing games or in these far-flung comic books. It was a soft reset for the franchise, but it was also a soft reset for my fandom as well. Being able to revisit the movies, being able to get into Rebels and catch up on Clone Wars and follow the small D discourse on Twitter is was fun for me in the late 2010s. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm glad you mentioned the animated series, which are absolutely like I would say essential in. Oh, yeah. If you're going to later I, on watch the live stuff,
1: yes. yes, definitely. Yeah.
0: Of the series canon, what are your favorites? What are your least favorites? At this point, we have more than five miniseries and like ongoing series, first, second, and third seasons of shows. So you have a lot to pick through.
1: There are things that I like about all of them, right? Like sure. even the ones that I like less. Andor absolutely knocked me over. It was a revelation <laughs> for me in many ways. I think the first... Season of The Mandalorian was awesome. I loved it. I have some takes about the directions that it's gone since then. Overall, I like it. Having just watched Ahsoka, I enjoyed Ahsoka, like being a fan of Rebels and following her character. Obi-Wan was good. Book of Boba Fett, I I think, could have been better, but yeah. there were things about it that, that I liked. I think those are the series that people, think of as what Star Wars is now. But I would say that in addition to those, I've loved the Star Wars Visions miniseries on Disney Plus. That has been incredible. Thinking about Bad Batch as like an extension of Clone Wars and and Rebels is really interesting. And I've enjoyed that series as well. There's, (laughs) and the Lego specials, of course. Okay, we don't have to do a deep dive into everything. But I think (laughs) there's a lot of stuff out there Depending on what you like in Star Wars, there is something for you.
0: I am so glad you brought up Visions because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it like reimagined by different artists and animators or is it like completely new stories?
1: Basically, different animation studios are given the latitude to tell a story that they want that's set within the Star Wars universe. Some are very focused on different people's relationships with the force right or some are really focused on family some are really focused on on rebellion like all of these themes that all of these recurring themes that that come up in star wars and stylistically each one is different because it's a different animation studio the first season was all japanese so it was like different anime styles throughout the year. Yeah. And then the second season, they went global. And it is really like a new look that that I really love.
0: Okay, cool, cool. I will have to go back to Visions because I remember seeing maybe an episode or two when it first aired and really enjoying it, but then never returning.
1: Here's my pitch for Visions okay. season love two. It. We as US residents have viewing Star Wars. We think about empire, we think about rebellion. And as like capital A Americans, we've seen ourselves as both at different times, uh, depending on the point in history that you're looking at. Um, But often we think of ourselves as rebels and not as much as the the empire, even though the US is most certainly an empire right now. Asking non-US based artists to take that To take the themes of Star Wars and tell a story, like, it makes it hit a little different. There's this one short about an an imperial facility was built on a planet, and it poisoned the water, and it basically wiped out the local population. It's a heavy story to be told in this setting, of course, and it's different to me if it's coming from not a U.S. storyteller telling the story.
0: Definitely going to check out the second season in that case. But yeah, something that you and I talked about a little bit before I hit record, speaking of this US context in which we consume Star Wars and talk about and analyze and critique it, is very much shaped slash directed by the fact that we live in the heart of an empire <laughs> and how we see ourselves in the story or not see ourselves. Um, and you had brought up Mumia Abu Jamal and his writing about. Star Wars. And I'm wondering if you could just like summarize that idea, that that manifesto.
1: It's like how, especially in the context of the late 1970s, when he wrote it, or the period of time that he's referencing, the US was very much acting as an empire in that moment, like it, it, Vietnam War era. And at the same time, here is this grand story that is meant to connect the viewer with the rebellion, right? Connect the viewer with the rebels. And then Lucas putting that twist in the second movie of how the very familial connection between between empire and rebels. And we're both, <laughs> or we see ourselves, we've seen ourselves as both, like you, the US has been Like if you think of the Revolutionary War as being like a a rebel time, but we've also built an empire. And I think particularly watching Andor, it's interesting because Andor is telling the story of how an empire tightens its grip, right? And how an empire really stifles rebellion and harms people every step of the way. On the one hand, Andor is a story about how at ump- the empire is tightening its grip. It's also the story of how regular people are undermining that at at every step of the way. And it's also the story is being told by this billion-dollar multinational corporation that exists to make profit, and in many ways is profiting from existing empire right now. Is this story meant to be taken in just? This is happening in the galaxy far away, and that's that, right? This is a story of that rebellion and that empire and how these forces are interacting over there, right? Mm-hmm. Or or is it, should we look at that as a reflection of current liberation struggles and current freedom-fighting efforts?
0: Yeah. Weird.
1: It's, it's weird.
0: I'm glad you brought that up just because I think that a lot of these stories are, in fact, based off of real-world examples. They weren't just left out of the ether.
1: That goes back to Lucas, right? He basing, living in the Vietnam era uh, for the original trilogy, the Iraq War era in the prequel trilogy. The real world is very baked into Star Wars at, yes. at both of those moments.
0: Agreed. Going back to Andor, just because... While you were talking, it reminded me of this conversation I I was seeing online of Andor does a good job of laying bare for audiences what it looks like when you use the tools of the empire to try to dismantle the empire, (laughs) you get the sort of like leftist infighting and government corruption that we get to see intricately through like Mon Mothma's experience in Andor. So you see all these examples laid bare of did they really learn from the rebellion or is history doomed to repeat itself?
1: I think the sequel trilogy is where I see that really laid out. There's probably a meta conversation of not learning various lessons from prequel era Star Wars discourse and trying to do different sorts of things with with the sequels. But I think what's sort of been built out, and I think what a lot of the TV shows that are taking place between the original trilogy era and the sequel trilogy area are getting at is what is the downfall of the New Republic? And when you think about leftist infighting or bureaucracy or playing down of extremism those are definitely things that are coming through in latter seasons of the Mandalorian in Ahsoka that's more of a look at the political drama of Mm. what's happening in that era that is to say I think you're right that the sequel trilogy or the these shows that take place in in the pre-sequel trilogy timeline are trying to tell that story of how lessons weren't learned Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I going like way back to when I had asked you like, oh, favorite, least favorite, you found things to like about each show. You did mention that there were some directions that The Mandalorian was taking that you weren't like super happy with. Would love for you to break that down a little bit more.
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm reaching the end of my enjoyment with the genre of Star Wars visual storytelling. That is, uh, I'm doing air quotes here, playing with my action figures in the sandbox. The Mandalorian has gone down that road, maybe a little too far (laughs) for me to like, really find myself enjoying it. Like, at the level that I did during season one. I think season one of The Mandalorian was really compelling, and I found it to be enjoyable start to finish. I'm going to levy a take here, Mm -hmm. and... Maybe this doesn't rise to the level of take, but I think Luke Skywalker showing up in The Mandalorian was a jump the shark moment. His sort of recurrence in The Mandalorian almost made, or sorry, oh my God, it wasn't even in The Mandalorian. It was in the book of Boba Fett. That, oh, yeah. That,
0: I did
1: the back. same thing. It all and blended together for me. <laughs> that sort of made, solidified my feeling that the storytelling from that point became over-reliant on these legacy characters, where I really think that the story of Din Djerin and Grogu was going in a pretty interesting direction bef- that you don't even have to bring in. Luke Skywalker to make it a compelling story. His action figure is up on the shelf. So of course, of course, they're going to grab it and bring it in. So that's fine.
0: First of all, I want to say takes are absolutely welcome (laughs) on this show. All good. Always welcome. The other thing I was going to say was it's refreshing to hear someone echo my feelings about later seasons of the Mandalorian and, and specifically the introduction of Luke, just because. Overwhelmingly fans have been like, "Oh my god, that was the best part. So cool to see Luke. It was so cool what they did with CGI and de-aging him." And it's like, "Was it?" I don't
1: I don't I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I do think that there have been moments in Star Wars TV where I've watched it and I've thought, "You know what? That doesn't look great." But I also know that built into the history of Star Wars is like is tweaking in the future. Right. And yeah. revisiting old content, repackaging it, updating it for the new technology that you have. And yeah. that's for me personally, that's why I haven't been like too oh Luke looks too uncanny valley or whatever.
0: Agreed. Weird direction for Mandalorian to go in. Are they planning more seasons? Yeah,
1: I'm 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 sure they are. Like this builds off of the playing with your action figures in the sandbox style of Star Wars storytelling, and it plays into this recent announcement of Dave Filoni being elevated to a new creative position at Star Wars, or within Star Wars, within Disney, I should say, Star Wars, within, <laughs> in, in the Star Wars franchise, of Disney, whatever. Um, sure. Everything, all of the TV shows are being written to come to a head, and, and basically be like Avengers. Ahsoka, Ahsoka will be building towards something... The Mandalorian is building towards something, probably mm-hmm. the Boba Fett is building towards something where mm-hmm. like all of these characters are going to come back together in a movie, Avenger style. And I think to me, Star Wars should get back to movies at some point. I think that is very much a core of the Star Wars experience and how they cultivate fans and build these moments. Like I, I think it's right to be thinking about movies and to build towards a movie with some of your TV content. I think that's fine. But I do think it's very much like Dave Filoni playing with his toys. (laughs) And here's how it's all going to come together. And I'm, I'll go, I'll be there. (laughs) Maybe three times. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, do you know where in the timeline the shows are building towards? Is it like between episodes six and seven.
1: The story that I see them pulling threads on, it's all in between, like it's all in between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens in the timeline. So between six and seven. But I see them pulling on how does Palpatine return, right? Like the spoilers for The Rise of Skywalker, (laughs) which came out in 2019. (laughs) The Empire is really trying to figure out Force users in the post-Palpatine timeline. Yeah. Post-first Palpatine, pre-second Palpatine timeline. They're rebuilding the their military that will become the... First Order? That, that becomes the First Order, and then the Final Order, and whatever. Like, all of that is happening, and I see them uh, alluding to those different things a- at different times. When the actual movie will take place, I'm not sure. I think the interesting thing about the sequel trilogy timeline is that... 7 and 8 they're immediately connected right mm-hmm. so episode 8 starts like seconds after episode 7 ended and yeah. that is that's uncommon for the other for the rest of the trilogy of trilogies it's not like they have a lot of time to play with there but if i make a allusion to another tv series that you can watch on disney plus star wars resistance which IMO underrated. That takes a look at the Hosnian Cataclysm and the shift to the la- between seven and eight, like from a different point of view, and the story that's happening alongside that. So I think it would be interesting to see how the TV shows handle that, or how the streaming shows handle that as they're coming together, and where this Avengers-style Star Wars movie ends up taking place.
0: I had started watching. Resistance and liked it, but then wasn't sure where they were going with
1: it. Here's my take on Resistance it's two, like, it's two whole seasons. There are episodes where you can cut out and not lose from the big picture story, where I think you can have a good, tight, 18 episode start to finish arc. This is a little like meta, but part of what I think are where the problems with, with Resistance had to do with the problems associated with. The production of The Rise of Skywalker. I thought resistance was going in a particular direction and building up towards whatever was going to happen in Rise of Skywalker. But then when they made the production change and brought back J.J. Abrams, it just went in a completely different way that they probably, for my money, they just decided, okay, we just need to stop resistance because like where this is going isn't going to line up with with where the rise of Skywalker ended up in the end without giving without spoilers I think they they did justice to the characters and their storylines and I think it, it ended in a good place and told a good story but is kind of like hurt by the challenges in the movie department of Star Wars and how stuff was going down over there
0: Yeah, I am glad you brought up the TV-to-movie pipeline and the Dave Filoni versus various film director aspect of it all. (laughs) Yeah, because it does end up complicating the stories down the line. So we shall see. I know we've got two, three more series on the docket coming up which some, correct me if I'm wrong, are like pre-prequel, <laughs> like ancient times. And then some that are like, I don't know. I, I I guess I don't know too much about what's on the docket.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is that the two series that we're looking at in 2024 are Skeleton Crew and The Acolyte. So Skeleton exactly. Crew will be in the timeline that we've been talking about. So between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. And then the Acolyte is going to be, yes, you're right, pre-prequels in the High Republic era. And this is the High Republic's first four. So the High Republic is is a really more of a publishing, Lucas publishing effort, like novel series, comics, children's books that are really outstanding. Oh. If you have a chance to read Light of the Jedi, which is the first one, it really lays out the era and where the jedi are at that moment and basically like the height of the jedi's power and influence in the galaxy the acolyte which i'm really excited about is starting to get into what really starts the downfall of the jedi going and oh oh boy i'm really really excited to see where that goes
0: I am glad you brought up like the downfall of the Jedi and where it all began because something that comes up in conversation a lot too, like in the forums, in the fan reddits, is this conversation of our Jedi cops. I mean, I'll let you answer.
1: <laughs> okay. This is a tangential uh, additional hot take. It's Please. that if you cosplay as a stormtrooper, you're a cop. I think that I I think that is the very clear to me that's the very clear okay which side are you on real life to star wars application right i think the jedi are probably more like detectives i don't know <laughs> like <they> were, <laughs> yeah uh, but sure. d- does that make them does that make them not cops they're still in in the cops family separated from like the direct question particularly in in the prequel trilogy where the jedi have some power and have some influence in the galaxy like they're an extension of the government like they're an extension of the republic and their position in that moment is to preserve the republic when there is an empire and when there is this very powerful multinational in our world multinational or in the star wars timeline intergalactic multi-planetary government they are in power right and even though palpatine is trying to sow discord and trying to turn the public against the jedi it doesn't detract from their role in like in the government of it all like they become more sympathetic figures when they're ostracized, when they're mostly wiped out, except for Obi Wan and Yoda and whoever else is deemed to have survived. So it fits the story, <laughs> um, and yeah. they they remain they remain empowered people or a- an okay. empowered class in in that moment. Yeah, are they cops? Cop adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
0: No, thank you. Thank you for for laying that out. I think also you bring up this element of shows like Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian and Ahsoka as well and and even like the Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries of these are people who were maybe I guess Ahsoka and Obi-Wan in particular had to become soldiers during the clone wars and were generals and like leading troopers leading soldiers into battle and and so they're now living with what is essentially, like, PTSD yeah. from yeah. that experience. And so what does that say about, like, when you're trained as a Jedi, but then you're, like, weaponized, essentially? <laughs> like, how do you reconcile that experience of being, like, basically, like, living at a temple <laughs> and then leaving well, the yeah. temple to become a soldier?
1: Yeah, it was a child soldier, right? Yeah. Like, she... Like, the Jedi at that time were, like, finding Force-sensitive children and bringing them to the temple and training them there, right? Like, they they knew nothing of their families. And, like, the downfall, and I, I think the context of bringing up Ahsoka in this is right. Spoiler, spoilers for the Ahsoka show? She never had her closure with Anakin, or at least prior to this moment. Clone Wars ends, her final interaction with Anakin is he's going off to save the Emperor, but really he falls to the dark side in that moment, right? They cross paths again in the Rebels timeline, and it's confirmed for her that he's Vader, and it sets her off on on another journey, (laughs) right? It sets her off on another journey that I think so far hasn't been filled in. So that's the timeline between Rebels and the Ahsoka TV show that hasn't been hasn't been fleshed out completely other than sort of illusions that come up in, in the Ahsoka show. If you also take in the associated Ahsoka media, <laughs> wow. so the, the, uh, the Ahsoka novel, it's almost like there are these different moments of her finding a little more closure at different points, find, finding your sense of self a, a little bit more at different steps along the way, and then it's, oh, this realization that Vader, that Anakin as Vader just like throws that off. And then it's not until she is able to interact with Force Ghost Anakin and go on this journey with him in the Ahsoka show that it seems like she really ends up in a good place. But her story isn't over. She's still stranded on this other galaxy far away, even further away. And I think she's gotta try and figure some stuff out still, but she's gotta figure out how to get her and Sabine back. But in terms of, like, her journey with Anakin that started from when she was, like, a a preteen, that is probably as wrapped up as it can be. Yeah. Which is, I think, it, it speaks to what you were saying. Yeah, essentially, like, they have PTSD, they've had to live with, like, all of this killing and they've had to think about oh was i doing the right thing or am i going to fall down the same path that anakin fell down like anakin she lost her connection to the jedi at different points and for different reasons but okay. she had to go through some shit to get to where she ended up and i found that part of the story i found that part of the ahsoka tv series pretty compelling I
0: totally agree but i really am grateful that i caught up on her journey up until the live action series because it does make it pretty clear that yeah she has been through some shit she's been a stand-in for audiences of having to navigate and having to like struggle with these existential questions um Mm. about like being a jedi and like being force sensitive and like the battle between light and dark so yeah
1: so Star Wars is usually like pretty mum on stuff. And No, I shouldn't say that. Because in the Disney era, they've announced a bunch of stuff and then not moved on it for years. That's significant in the Disney era. But in terms of different plot points, in terms of the the look and feel of the show, they're pretty good about keeping that under wraps until they're ready to announce it. Usually at celebration or something. Like there there were major twists in both in both the Mandalorian premiere and in the mm-hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobi premiere and nobody knew either of those things until it happened they're good at keeping things under wraps when they need to they're probably too quick to announce things <laughs> when they're confirmed at the front end but that's a billion dollar corporation for you
0: <laughs> that's true i think that sort of brings us to Um, our time together. We did some meta analysis. We did some deep dives into the shows. We got deep into the mythology. (laughs) We had some hot takes. (laughs) I feel really good about this conversation. Any final thoughts, any burning comments you want to make? Give your piece about anything before we wrap.
1: I actually think that the stuff I wanted to make sure I got in, I worked into the conversation. So that's good.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think too, you were able to introduce me and then also listeners to some stuff that I wouldn't have even necessarily looked into. I, I definitely want to check out the novels, the comics. And so yeah, I'll make sure to include in the show notes some of the stuff you referenced. Cool.
1: If you, if you're interested in the politics of the sequel timeline, Bloodline is the one.
0: Okay, awesome. Thanks again. It's been such a pleasure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks so much again to Brandon for that awesome conversation. Thanks, friends, for listening. I've been your host, Anjali Misra. This episode was edited by the always wonderful Audrey Cornell. And Anjali Vision is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time.